And that's what I found in writing my first book. And that's what I talk about in Mind Management, Not Time Management, is this passive genius, this incubation that takes place in our minds. We know as a culture, because we have expressions such as, oh, sleep on it, that our mind has a way of working on our problems when we're not actively working on it. But how often do we actually do that in our actual projects? You'd be amazed what can happen if, as you're waiting to get into the dentist's chair, you just take a minute to open up a notes app on your phone and brainstorm a couple points about some blog post that you want to write, for example. And then, you know, maybe the next day, maybe later that afternoon, maybe a week later, you sit down and write it and, huh, it just comes out a little bit better, a little bit more crisp than it would have had you not taken that couple minutes to write about that. Well, because your brain was working on it when you weren't actively working on it. Hey, I'm David Eliku, and this is The Knowledge, a podcast for anyone looking to think deeper and work smarter. In every episode, I speak with makers, thinkers, and innovators to help you get more out of life. This week, I'm sharing part of my conversation with David Kadavi. Now, David is an incredibly prolific writer. He's written about 12 books that have altogether sold over 100 thousand copies which is incredible so you're going to hear us talking about david's early journey into writing and being able to find success writing self-published books we also talked about some of the challenges of maintaining a regular writing habit and being able to wrestle with your internal creative muse as you continually push yourself to try and find new things to write about and ways to continually push yourself as a writer we also talked about cultivating your creativity and finally we talked about some of the changes that david is seeing within the publishing space and the opportunities on the horizon for new creators and writers so this is a great episode if you are interested in writing whether it's in long form like books or short form like articles and posts we cover a lot of that and there's going to be a lot of great frameworks that you can pick up from listening to me and david speak you can find the full show notes transcript and read my newsletter on the knowledge.io and you can and find David on Twitter at Kadavi. So you started writing this blog, and I know that even part of when you were writing your book, you were already partly in this productivity space where you're thinking about getting things done, things like that. And that was maybe a factor in, as you were writing that book, some of the things that you struggled with. So I'd love to maybe hear more about the, the process of writing that book, and then how that led to you getting a lot more interested in the writing side of things rather than the design. So I wish I would have been more regular at writing on my blog from the beginning. I certainly was somebody who didn't believe in this idea of having a writing habit of making sure that I was constantly shipping writing. I kind of just waited to be inspired or to have an idea and I would write. And sometimes that would come in spurts where I was writing a couple in a week and sometimes months would go by and I wouldn't write anything. And then when I did finally get out of Nebraska and moved to Silicon Valley, I felt quite fulfilled in the work that I was doing for a time there and so didn't hardly write on my blog. But then I left Silicon Valley Quite deliberately, job offers nipping at my tail, moved to Chicago, wanted space to think and explore my own ideas and just to see what would come from that. And there came a period where I was applying to speak at South by Southwest. I had wanted to speak at that conference since I had heard about it, you know, 
back in Nebraska in my great cubicle in 2003, I think was probably the first time I had heard of it. thought, wow, that'd be so cool to go to that conference. It'd be even cooler to speak at it. And I submitted one panel idea one year thinking, well, I probably won't get it because I can tell as I'm writing this proposal that I'm not quite qualified, but I'm at least learning the process. And that's exactly what happened. I don't even remember what that idea was that year. But then the following year, I pitched a friend of mine. I had this idea, well, maybe I will, I'll set up a panel of a few of my friends. I started to have some friends who were getting pretty successful online and thought, well, I'm not a big success, but if I can get these people together, that would at least get me on stage. So I, I wrote a proposal to one of my friends to sort of send him a little pitch email. Within like 30 seconds, he writes back and says, sorry, I don't think this is for me. You know, I think it's good to have friends who are honest with you in that way. And I, but I felt awful. It felt like, oh, I just got, I've got nothing. What am I going to do? And I think the next day I went to the cafe near my house and sat out on the porch and sat at the picnic table and sort of thought, okay, well, let's, we need to come up with something. And there was this talk I had done at Bar Camp. If you know what Bar Camp is like this unconference thing. I had done a, a talk called Design for the Coder's Mind, where I'd done a short talk, basically, here's some basic design principles. I thought, huh, that's that's something. And I was thinking, well, I think the way that I would get a panel at South by Southwest would be I'd find a channel where I would get some web traffic for an article related to the topic that my panel or my talk would be about. Now, I had gotten decent at that period of time at getting on the front page of Hacker News various articles, maybe like WordPress optimization or... Was that slightly... Was that still difficult back then as it is now? I mean, now it's incredibly difficult. Okay. I have no idea how to do it now. But I also think it's a lot geekier now. And I also think... I don't know if it's just because I'm older, but I feel like there's a little... The people there were a little smarter back then. Like it was a smaller group of much smarter people. I think than it is now. I mean, have you ever looked at like shit HN says Twitter and you just like see the stuff that people say in the comments and how dumb. Yeah, <laughs> I think the people that were writing were actually also working in technology and building things and doing things. Whereas now I think there's a lot more space of commentary in general where people are not also having to think about doing stuff. And I think you've talked about this before and it, it links very much even in my mind, just as you say it, to uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb talks about asymmetry and looking for asymmetric opportunities. And I think this is exactly that kind of opportunity where you could easily have just been trying to write normal blog posts and you can write hundreds of blog posts. I've written loads of blog posts. None of mine have been on Hacker News as far as I'm aware, but you can just write lots of blog posts. But I think because you were trying to optimize for this particular stage, trying to get this panel at South by Southwest, maybe that changed in some ways, like how you wrote it and how you approached that entire process, which then led to this other opportunity as well. Yeah, I just didn't necessarily know it at the time. And I wasn't familiar with Nassim Taleb's work at the time, but it was it was a positive black swan, as he would describe it, as I was basically putting something out there into a place where there would be a lot of exposure and there'd be a lot of things that would happen. And I was very intentional about how I was going to try to accomplish this thing that I wanted to accomplish. But then this other thing happened, right? And, but, and that intentionality helped me focus what it was that I was writing about, how I was going to do it, and all of that. I, do, I will say, I mean, it is 
it, I feel like it's way harder now. I don't know how to get on the front page of Hacker News. I don't know how to even get 30,000 views on a post. I don't know how to get 30,000 views on a tweet, but I can sell 20,000 books. So tell me that, how that works. I put a tweet out, it's free. I can't get 20,000 people to look at it, but I can put out a book and say, oh, this is $10 and I can get 20,000 people to buy it. How does that work? I actually was just talking about this for my podcast. I was speaking with David Perel and I was talking about how Mark Manson, the last time I spoke to Mark Manson and had him on my podcast, after we were done, I was like, hey man, if you got a second, like, do you have any advice? Like, how can I take my blogging and stuff to the next level? He's like, ugh, you know, it's just blogs are kind of done, man. It's just nobody's read all the traffic's down, you know. Tim Urban, wait, but why? His traffic's down. My traffic's down. You know, it's just, I mean, you're doing a podcast. That's probably, that's a good category to be in right now. This was several years ago. I just got to be in like a growth category or something. And David Perel's like, I've heard Tim Urban say the same thing also that, that while he was fortunate that Facebook was really pushing blogs into people's feeds about in 2013 when he popped. And that's about the time that Mark Manson really popped as well was that Facebook was all, they wanted to get people on their platform and they didn't mind sending people to blogs at the time. And I've heard Tim Urban say that he felt lucky that had happened at the time that he was doing it. But David Perel's stance when I spoke to him was like, well, I don't know. There's always some category, which I think maybe this is what Mark Manson was trying to say. There's always some category that's like on the way up. And right now that's Twitter threads. Maybe these guys are just kind of confused by it because the web has changed since when they were coming up. And they're not as hungry as they once were, so they don't necessarily have the drive to like figure this out, which is something I think I certainly had at the time when I just wanted to stop freelancing. I wanted to start making some money of something that was mine that I had created, and I was just felt desperate to make that happen, and that was very motivating. And so as I say is today, as I make a comfortable living doing what I do, I don't have that same desperation to like try to figure it out. You know, when you have like marketers that write stuff for marketers and they have this huge following because everyone wants to be the person that is saying the stuff. And so I see a lot of people that are tweets about writing viral tweets. And so if everyone that is following them or engaging with this stuff are people that also want to have that exact same fame, but it's almost, I don't want to say a pyramid scheme, but like, what is the outcome outside of that? Like, if you're not just writing about how to do this exact same thing, where is the objective outside of that? Because I assume all of the people that are following those people want to tweet about other things other than how to get people to read your tweets. Yeah, it's self, self-referential. self I don't know if it makes it... I mean, that, that's just. I think that's just the nature of electronic media is that the means of production are in the hands of everybody the more that everybody's trying to be successful with the means of production. And so then to talk about how to be successful with the means of production becomes appealing to a wide number of people who happen to also be better than yet than the average person at the means of production. And so in a way, it's it's a way to attach to a number of different hubs that have lots of spokes coming out of them. And so it's a decent way to build an audience, I think. Yeah. Where do you think books are going? Because, I mean, this is going to segue into talking more about your books and your writing. But 
I know you just mentioned Mark Manson and what he was saying about blogging and what's been happening yeah. with blogging, where a lot of people's viewerships are down and you've had some success with books, but I think we're going through a really interesting paradigm in the book selling industry where you have a lot of people that have previously written books that were traditionally published are now publishing themselves and not just publishing themselves, but then also going through this huge transition of instead of maybe largely looking to sell paperback books, a lot of people are selling digitally and selling things online. And it's more so moving towards eBooks, even though I think the cachet of being a, an author and having written a book is still in the paperback books. And it might not carry over to someone that has never sold a paperback book. If you've only sold eBooks, it might not count in the same way or carry the same weight. But I do think from what I'm seeing, it's like the majority of books that are being sold are not physical anymore. Yeah. And I think that for the wide, sort of the vast number, or I think for most people, a book is a book. Even if you put like a 30 page Kindle up there, a lot of people are like, oh, you wrote a book, which is, I mean, I, I, and you did. What we've decided books were in the past has has come along with certain parameters that, you know, I guess if we go back to there used to be scribes. So you had the resources for somebody to write this by hand on like a bunch of sheepskin, maybe some papyrus brought it up from Egypt to Europe where a lot of this was happening. And then Gutenberg developed the press. And then, I mean, you, you still needed quite a bit of money and resources for something to get published. And Certain institutions had more money and resources than others, and that was happening. And and so up until recently, well, we've had traditional publishers, and if you're going to publish a book, well, it might as well, it's going to cost this much to even begin to publish it. And so it's got to be about, you have to be able to sell for about this price, and people kind of want it to be a certain length, and so it's 200-some pages. So now you've got a whole bunch of, oh, this should have been a blog post, but it's a 250-page book. I think rather than it should have been a blog post, it should have been a 30-page book. Pamphlets used to be really important. They spurred a lot of different revolutions, people sharing ideas. Thomas Paine's Common Sense being you know, the, probably best-selling pamphlet ever, and they were often funded by their authors, and they would be sold on a newsstand for a few pennies, and they would get ideas out there, and they were short. And I think blogs were supposed to be sort of the replacement for the pamphlet. Then we ran into this issue with the economics of a blog. Turns out it's not free and it's not necessarily super easy to maintain a blog or a website. You've got to deal with a lot of different things like spam and keeping paying for your hosting fees and all that stuff. And so if you're putting free content out there, how are you getting how are you making that worth your while? Some people put ads all over the blogs, and that obviously sucks because you can't read most websites unless it's in reader mode. And then other people say, well, I'm just going to put a, a pop over and collect emails and uh, have some $1,200 course that I'll just try to funnel some small percentage of my people into. But those economics lend themselves to certain types of things. If you're going to buy a $1,200 course, it better be pretty specific and help you do a specific thing that somebody knows how to do that is going to hopefully in turn then make you some money. So it's not really a good place, I think, for like sharing an idea or saying, here's how I think about this thing. Or I've spent years thinking about this one little 
obscure topic and here's my new way of thinking about it. The economics don't really support that. But I think that a, a book or a pamphlet is a pretty honest exchange. I mean, obviously, um, not perfectly honest exchange. People generally want to read books that, that don't challenge their beliefs, that perhaps reinforce their beliefs. There's all sorts of things like that. But generally, it's, okay, here's this idea that I've packaged up, and you're going to pay some money for it, and I'm going to get a little bit of that money. And so I feel like that is a, a lot better relationship for trying to figure out what is really worth being said or worth hearing. And so I'm a big advocate of, right, 30-page books, 50-page books. I've got several of them. Some of them have been total flops. I wrote a book entirely about the font papyrus and why, despite everybody hating it, maybe they shouldn't be so concerned about it. And that I've spent a lot of time on and hasn't done too well. I've written another book, a 75-page one on digital Zettelkasten, which is this note-taking system that has this cult following, which is incredibly powerful. And it's been this surprise hit when I'm making all these foreign rights deals and getting checks for thousands of dollars for this book that took me a couple months to write. And at the same time, I write my magnum opi, like things like mind management, not time management, which are kind of like years and years, maybe a decade in the making and thinking about the ideas that go in them and then finally writing them into some kind of form. So I think that the floodgates have, are open, but people haven't necessarily noticed yet that you could write an idea in 500 words right now and go to kdp.amazon.com and make a cover with the cover generator and upload a book today and it would have the exact same screen real estate as War and Peace. Whether there's a paper version of it or not, think about that. In a bookstore on the bookshelf, War and Peace stands out because it's really thick. And a pamphlet, you can't even print the title on the side of it or on the spine of it. So I think that's exciting. I would encourage people to write short books, experiment with it. And maybe while they're at it, write some of the longer books too. This applies to, obviously, I write as well. And one of the things I do want to ask you about is your writing process. I think you write daily and that's a, that, a practice I've tried to cultivate. But I think for a lot of people do struggle with creativity or creative output, regardless of whether it's they're trying to write a book or they're just trying to put something out there. And I think a lot of people have huge blockers to that. I think I was hearing you talk about, oh, that you use like a typewriter and you use some offline tools to write. And I think I have a similar practice and I find it so strange that the biggest unlock, so probably the, if I want to write something and it absolutely has to go out, I have this really ugly, just really bad and crappy notebook that has the worst paper in the world. And I've had it for years and years. It's actually, I think, less than half of the original notebook because at one point it fell apart. So this is just what is left, what I've managed to keep and recover over the years. And it's so bad that it makes it so easy to write. And it's weird because part of, okay, cultivating my habit of writing regularly was writing in a notebook. And I got these really nice lectern notebooks and I write in them regularly and I do use those. And that is great for getting ideas out of my mind. And I find that writing actually helps things to flow because writing forces you to slow down because when you're typing, it's very easy to type almost as fast as you can think. And you start typing all kinds of random stuff. But when you write, it does force you to slow down. You have to be a lot more considerate with what you put down. 
But then going down even a level from there, I find that very often when I'm writing in my nice notebook, there's a almost a mental barrier that what I write has to be good because now it's going to be semi-permanent. Like it's written down and I'm not going to tear pages out of this. Whereas when I write in my really just shoddy notebook, I don't care. And I am going to throw this away. No one's ever going to see it. I'm never going to care. No one's ever going to care. It doesn't matter what my writing looks like. It doesn't matter what my thoughts look like. Things can be jumbled about, but it helps me get things out. And I wonder how that lands with you and maybe some of your other thoughts on being able to get things out creatively as well. Yeah, I think with notebooks, there's two strategies. The One is, hey, get yourself a really nice expensive notebook with really nice paper and uh, a really nice pen and that will help you learn that your ideas are really valuable but also get a notebook that's just the crappiest paper with the cheapest pen possible and that will remind you that ideas are a dime a dozen and that relieving of pressure is i think a lot behind a lot of the tools that i use for writing i've got a typewriter over my shoulder don't know if people can see it or not 1953 Smith Corona Super. I absolutely love it. I really do write on it very, very often. And the thing that I love about it is that as I'm writing it, there's no fooling myself. This is a draft. There is nothing I can do that will turn this into something that I can just press publish on. I even tried the OCR technology on uh, iPhone and thankfully it does not work, which is kind of strange because the typewriter is a mechanically reproduced letters. You would think it would be able, it's pretty consistent. You'd think it would be able to do that. So the typewriter, I've got another th- another thing called an AlphaSmart, which is a portable word processor that I write on and often delete things. I've got these little whiteboards that I keep write things on and then I erase them. Because really, it's not about the thing that you're, the product that you're producing a lot of the times. It's about the thought processes that are happening. And I really like to work on something, iterate on it over and over and over again, where I just am writing it. I'm writing the first draft. And then the next day or a week later, I, I sit down and I write about the same thing without even looking at the first draft. And it's just, what's the best way to say this thing that feels most natural to me right now? I love the ideas of you know, Homer's work of like the, the Iliad or, or the Odyssey, these things that came from oral traditions where there were storytellers who were traveling around and they were telling stories by just speaking them. And maybe they would change the story based upon the place that they were at. But I think over time that probably like, made the stories that much more interesting because when you try to recall something from nothing, then you just end up with whatever is the most interesting and the most engaging. And so that's what I try to do with writing is just put a lot of crap out there, publishing out there sometimes, but get it down on paper, let it incubate in my mind, and then get back to it. It's a far more, I think that's a far more efficient process to getting that crisp writing that you're looking for. And that's what I found in writing my first book. And that's what I talk about in Mind Management, Not Time Management, is this passive genius, this incubation that takes place in our minds. We know as a culture, because we have expressions such as, oh, sleep on it, that our mind has a way of working on our problems when we're not actively working on it. But how often do we actually do that in our actual projects? 
you'd be amazed what can happen if as you're waiting to get into the dentist's chair, you just take a minute to open up a notes app on your phone and brainstorm a couple points about some blog post that you want to write, for example. And then, you know, maybe the next day, maybe later that afternoon, maybe a week later, you sit down and write it and huh, it just comes out a little bit better, a little bit more crisp than it would have had you not taken that couple minutes to write about that. Well, because your brain was working on it when you weren't actively working on it. Yeah, I love that. That fits in perfectly with something that I do as well, even just as you were saying it. So taking notes regularly and writing things down all the time, even when you're not intentionally planning to write something right now. And I think that's probably been the biggest unlock for me with my writing. And people have asked, oh, how do you think of all these things to write regularly? And it's, I mean, I kind of don't, or as I'm reading things and as I'm collecting information, I'm thinking, okay, how could I maybe write this? Or what are my thoughts on this? And I'm connecting the dots with other things that I write. And I can talk a bit more about that in a second. But in terms of how I make notes, so in my Notion dashboard, I just have this concept of velocity and it's like the velocity of an idea and it's imagine you start off with some a rock on a hill of snow and as it rolls down it collects more and more snow and the snowball grows bigger and it it gains more velocity as it goes down and by the time it gets to the bottom it's this huge thing and that is what you eventually publish and so it kind of mirrors that where i have ratings it's rated between one and five, but I only really use one, three, and five. So I don't rate anything a two and I don't rate anything a four. And what that forces me to do is, so what I call a one, a velocity of one is just bullet points, like just an idea that came to me. It could be one line, it could be three lines, but it's literally just bullet points and it doesn't mean anything. And then a three is like a few sentences at least. So now maybe I've got a structure of what I want to write about. And this could also then go into like a few paragraphs, but it's, there is something there. And I kind of have an idea of exactly what this is and what the structure would look like. And then a five is like a few paragraphs. So now I actually have some meat on the bones and usually, so then when I actually want to come and write something to publish. So for example, it could be a Sunday afternoon and I need to send a newsletter out on Monday and I have no idea what I'm going to write. I can just go and start with the fives. And those are things that already have a few paragraphs in them. I haven't done anything more than that. I haven't thought about anything more than that. But because I've set that as the baseline of what that's going to be, then I can just look at those things. Or sometimes I don't like any of those ideas and I can just go to the threes. And those are all things that at least there's a few sentences. And so I think because also, so the intentionality in skipping two and four is that it forces me to go up to the limit of the next level. So if I've only got one word or like one line, I have to get it up to a few sentences to change it from a one to a three. Otherwise it's still a one. So if I then get a framework of what I would write, then it can be a three. And it's only going to go from a three to a five if it's now like at least two or three paragraphs. Yeah, you could you can filter. It's almost like you can filter by what your energy level is in a moment. How much time, attention, focus do I have in this moment to develop an idea? I can develop the ideas that are further developed, or maybe I'm feeling a little bit more scatterbrained and it's a good time to like think a little bit more about the ideas that need some more development. Is that kind of how that works? Yeah, it, it gives me some freedom to know that if I only have an idea, then at least it's something. And I know that that can ladder up to something else, but there's no expectation that I need to sit down and write several paragraphs. I could sit down and, and write just a sentence on this thing. And that's fine because I know that next time I can pick that up and progress that a little bit more. 
Yeah. The book that I'm working on right now, or the one of the magnum opi I'm working on right now, is a book about finishing and about follow through. And I've come to realize that we often hold ourselves to the wrong standards of follow through and our ability to finish something. And I think it has a lot to do with what problems it is that we're trying to solve. David Gallinson is this economist from UChicago who found these two different patterns of creators, the experimental creators and the conceptual creators. And the experimental creators are the ones who are always experimenting, always searching for this new idea and they might spend their entire lives doing it, whereas the conceptual creators are the ones who have an idea and they just want to execute that idea. And as it turns out, the conceptual creators do the more influential work of their career when they're very young, whereas the experimental creators get more and more influential as as time goes on. So the archetype example is Picasso was conceptual. He did some really influential work, did his most influential work when he was 26, lived to be in his 90s and didn't do a lot that was super significant for most of his late life. And then Cezanne is the classic experimental creator who did his most influential work in his very last year when he was 67 years old because he was constantly experimenting, constantly trying to figure out how can I represent on the canvas the thing that I'm seeing as I look at a landscape and then I look at the canvas, how do I represent that? And there are two very different approaches that you can find in a lot of things where Cezanne saw the work that he did as uh, part of the process. He would like abandon his paintings in fields because, well, he already learned what he wanted from doing that painting. And Picasso would hold on to all of his work and kind of say, well, you know, history will decide whether this is a influential work or not. And I think about like Leonardo da Vinci, who is probably the, the most famous procrastinator of all time, who finished maybe less than fewer than a dozen paintings in his life, never even finished the Mona Lisa, was just crippled by his inability to follow through on projects. But when you look at what he was doing, when you look at the questions he was asking, the problems he was trying to solve, what he was trying to develop, of course he didn't finish it, finish these things, because what he was trying to do was impossible. He wasn't even trying for photorealism. Photographs didn't exist. He was trying to understand how did people perceive that he studied optics, he studied anatomy, did dissections until his stomach was turning, and, you know was trying to represent the world very realistically and made a lot of advances in things like perspective. Michelangelo to some extent, but Michelangelo sort of brute forced his way into being able to finish things. He left a lot of things unfinished. But here's what happens, though, is that these conceptual creators, people like Picasso, took a lot from what Cezanne had blazed the trail with. And then Raphael was the great master of the high Renaissance who basically went and looked at what Leonardo and Michelangelo did and said, oh, hey, I can do that, and just was able to stand on their shoulders and execute very, very well. And he was very suave. He was a great networker, very gregarious, and was able to execute. And so I think it's useful sometimes to ask yourself, what are the problems that I'm trying to solve in this work that I'm trying to turn into something? Because sometimes it's just such an open-ended question that, yeah, of course it's going to be hard. Of course it's going to take time for you to figure this thing out. And I like to 
play with both modes where I've got books I'm writing where I'm trying to discover something. I have no idea what I'm going to find exactly. I've got just some basic theory and then maybe some shorter things where I'm like, I know exactly how this process works. I'm just going to top down, explain it, you know, inductive versus deductive. I also like to call it the angel or the expert where the angel is, I've just been through this. I'm going to show you what I have fresh on the tip of my brain because I just learned it. And then the expert, which is I've got a lot of experience on this. I'm going to tell you exactly how it's done. And uh, I think some of us are experimental creators and it behooves us to recognize that. And uh, we can certainly design our workflow in ways that are a lot more friendly to our particular styles of approaching ideas. Where do you think success comes from as a creator? So what you were just saying, it made me think of, I mean, I guess there's two sides of the the concept. It's the curiosity to start and the consistency to finish. And a lot of the examples you were sharing made me think of another artist that you didn't mention, which is Van Gogh or Van Gogh. And what I find really interesting about him is that he was like really bad. He was not good at, at painting to start. And even when he, he died, he was also not a famous painter at that time. He only got a lot of the fame that he had long after he was, he was gone. But during his time, I mean, I think he originally started as he tried to become a pastor and he got fired from that because he wasn't very good. Then he tried to become a, a teacher and he got fired from that because he wasn't very good. And then he started painting or drawing. Actually, I think he came across a book that was teaching you how to draw. And he also wasn't very good at that, but no one can fire you from just playing with pencils. So he continued and people mocked him, I think at first, because again, his drawings weren't that good, but he kept going. And by the time that he died, I think people don't even fully conceptualize how young and how short the time span of everything that he created was because he died in his thirties and he didn't start until he was 27. So it was a really short, condensed time frame. And I think by the time that he died, he'd created about 900 paintings and drawings and then lots of other sketches as well. And what I love about that example is just that his greatness and everything that he learned just came from being super consistent over time and just continuing to create and continuing to pump things out and churn things out. But on the flip side, some of the people that you've just mentioned, I think it was Da Vinci as an example, that were incredibly meticulous and had all of this thought going into everything that they created to the extent that they didn't really finish a ton of things, but there is still greatness there. There's still success there in what they were able to create despite that. And so I'm really interested to know how you think of that balance in creativity and output and success, where on one hand, maybe it could just be brute forcing things and just by being prolific, you can end up being good. Or you could take the approach that by being incredibly intentional, uh, and this maybe goes to what I think it's Malcolm Gladwell refers to as deliberate practice, where it's not just about the number of hours that you do something for, but also the way that you use that time and having that process of deliberate practice and intentionality about exactly how you work and exactly how you create the output is what really matters. Yeah. So how can a creator be successful is, I think that there's no answer to the question. I think that there's a way to go about it that might improve a person's odds. I do think that there's a lot of randomness to it. I do think that people will often 
times, though, hide behind this idea of survivorship bias. They maybe hear some advice that somebody gives and they say, well, you didn't hear from all the people who tried that same thing and didn't succeed. Like, yeah, of course, idiot, because this isn't something that you're guaranteed success in no matter what you do. Like, that's the whole idea. If you want to be guaranteed success, go to HVAC school and they'll tell you exactly how to repair HVAC. And you'll have a secure job and it's great. Thank goodness for HVAC people or plumbers or whatever, where they know how this is done. This is what you're trying to do is impossible. What you're trying to do has no guarantees to it. And so you can't necessarily dismiss an idea or a way of doing things based upon the fact that some people are going to do it and, and not succeed. But the way that I try to think of things is the barbell strategy. I try to think about myself as like a capital allocator. I only have so many resources. I only have so much time. I only have so much energy. Where am I at right now? And where do I need to get to be able to continue to experiment? And what can I do to protect my downside so that I have some level of security? And then what are the different ideas I can try that will maybe not take a ton of effort, or but that will give me an opportunity for something to happen? And I think that we live in a great world for that because it's so interconnected. You know, you can like, you could just go like blah, blah, blah and put it out on uh, TikTok and you'll have like 30 million views. Now, is that going to be lasting success? Are you guaranteed it? Certainly not. It's very unlikely it's going to happen. And would you have lasting success if that happens? Probably not. Uh, we've certainly seen like a lot of people who've just sort of randomly gotten famous for something and they've like tried to milk it somehow and it just doesn't really work out so well. It's got to be based upon something. But uh, I try to look at it as, you know, what's interesting to me, what sort of little projects can I continue to put out there and ship where I'm at least like getting a chance for something to happen. And every time I have a winner, I just try to put that into keeping myself secure so I can continue to explore. As Walt Disney said, we don't make movies to make money. We make money so we can make more movies. Uh, I think there's a lot of these practical concerns for a lot of us who, you know, it's like when you read like the the Daily Rituals book by Mason Curry, great book, but they're all like, oh, yeah, so-and-so's servant would, you know, give him coffee in the morning and that, you know, they would do everything, like the, just basically all this landed gentry in aristocratic England or something who didn't have to do anything and didn't have to worry about whether they were successful enough to make enough money to keep doing what they're doing. So I think that's like a very real consideration for a lot of people is like what's going to make money but at the same time what is interesting to me and sometimes those things can be at odds in a way because the thing that will that seems most guaranteed to get you that little bit of security is going to be the thing that has the least likelihood of getting you any sort of stratospheric success so i like to just try to catch myself anytime i have like a wacky idea that I think, ah, it's not going to work. I don't have the time to do that. And I try to make space for more of those things and try to do few of the things that are the sure bets. But that's been like, I've had to kind of earn that over time. You know, early on it was, okay, I need freelance work. Okay, I need passive income. Okay, now I need to sell this course. I need to sell this book. And now I'm starting to get that snowball going a little bit where I can experiment. But then that becomes 
difficult to do because if you have one thing that you can do that you're pretty sure is going to succeed because you've built up the snowball, well, you're going to stop doing the behavior that got you to where you were in, in the first place. And so I think that it is trying to find what works, but then when you find what works, doing just enough of it to be able to find what works again and not clinging on to the thing that worked in the past. If it matters to you that you get to continue to be curious and continue to explore. If it does not, then by all means, you know, juice it for all it's worth. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please do stay tuned for more. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. It really helps the podcast and follow me on Twitter. Feel free to shoot me any thoughts. See you next time.